This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of Federal News Network and uh, today, we're gonna, I guess we'll, we'll do a potpourri of various procurement issues as we get into the third month of the new calendar year. It's the first time you've been on in quite a while, Jason, so welcome back to the show. Thanks, Roger. There's so much to talk about, and, and let's have some fun. Okay, well, <laughs> of course, procurement's always fun, right, Jason? <laughs> that's, that's why we do this. <laughs> right. Well, first of all, um, I know you've been covering some small business issues, and in particular, this Tolliver case and the uh, potential ramifications with regard to application of the rule of two to basically all transactions in a certain sense, if you take it to its sort of logical conclusion. Just can you fill us in on what you've been, what you've been following and what you're hearing about it? The Tolliver case was really interesting. Now, I have to say, I did not see this when it came out. This was one of those GAO cases, uh, you know, decisions of, and, and then a court of federal claims decision that, you know, I just didn't see. And then someone wrote a blog post about it, uh, Todd Overman, who's a lawyer over at uh, Bass, Barry and Sims. And he it was a very interesting blog post. You know, Roger, it's one of those things where I'm like, rule of two, haven't written about that in a while. Went back, did some research and said, oh, that's the thing that popped up in 2015, 2016. And it was, it was a pretty big deal several years ago. So as I talked to Todd and, and started looking into this, it was really an interesting case because basically the Army made a decision that was just, it's, it makes us, I think those of us in the procurement world, or at least watching the procurement world like myself, it pulls whatever hair I have left out because they set aside a contract, made an award to small firms. They did the rule of two analysis correctly. They realized, hey, we have more than two small firms that are, are you know, able to bid on this. They made the award. The award was protested. And then instead of taking corrective action and re-releasing the, the contract, they just canceled the contract and moved it over to a multiple award contract where there were no small businesses. So you're going, what are you thinking, Army? This is not that hard. So then what they, did, they ended up doing was getting uh, the, the companies who initially had won the contract protested, said the Army violated the rule of two, the Court of Federal Claims said they did, and now they're being forced to kind of relook at this contract. And, and the reason why this Tolliver case is so important is because the court decision said the rule of two applies to any acquisition far apart 19 without any loophole for multiple award task orders. Now, the fact is, is that when an agency is looking at a task order at a contract and they can apply the rule of two, they need to do it specifically under the simplified acquisition threshold, which is under $150,000. Now, I know I probably missed something in there, so I'll let you fill in from a lawyer perspective what I missed. Well, first of all, I, I don't know if this is one of those cases where bad facts make bad law, but um, I think you're right on point in terms of just the, the behavior of the Army in the situation where they went out and uh, set aside 
task orders under the multiple ward schedule program. And upon a protest and, and rather than taking corrective action, they decided to take, you know, removal action. I don't know what the right term and move it to a completely different contract where those small businesses who invested their bid and proposal cost and marketing and all that were not able to compete because the IDIQ that they chose only had large businesses on it. And the court looking at that fashion, you know, the, the solution here or the, the essentially the case, you know, and I think what Todd Overman was saying in his blog is, hmm, the ramifications of this could be huge because essentially you take that case to its logic conclusion. I think what the judge was saying is that, oh, the rule of two applies to everything. So it's whether you're picking a particular IDIQ contract at the very beginning, whether once you pick that contract, you have to apply the rule of two again, or it raises questions about you know, the structure of multiple award IDIQ contracts and IDIQ contracts in general, and just how um, agencies utilize those things moving forward in the future, potentially. I think the key here is it's under the simplified acquisition threshold, correct? It's not for all contracts. No, I don't, if it's below the simplified acquisition threshold, um, at least open market, you have to uh, set aside that acquisition for small business, right? That's from the micro purchase threshold up to the simplified acquisition threshold. Over the simplified acquisition threshold, you still have to apply the rule of two in any acquisition to determine whether it's two small businesses who can provide it at a you know reasonable price. So it does still apply. And I don't think, unless I'm reading the decision wrong, it only applied to below the simplified acquisition threshold. It applies to essentially everything. The, the issue in multiple ward contracts is laced in the schedules uh, world, those contracts, it's at the discretion of the contracting officer whether they want to set aside or order or not. At least that's the way it's been interpreted and been implemented in the past. And that discretion combined with incentives and the ability to report small business goals um, has resulted in the schedules program being probably the most successful small business program out there. 37% last year, 37% of the dollar volume went to small businesses. And so you have a, you have something that's working really well. And now this approach and in, in the course decision, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, you know, uh, moving forward. I think that's the key to this is whether or not, other small businesses tag on to this. They start using it to protest to GAO, to the Court of Federal Claims. And then what do the court and GAO say about that? And, and I think that's really the, what I, when I talked to experts for my story from a couple weeks ago, that's what they pointed to to say, hey, if the court basically ignores this, this is just a one-off. They, the other judges or other people at GAO look at this and go, eh, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal then this Tolliver case is not that big of a deal. But if the opposite happens, then we have new challenges, new things that come into play. And again, you know, Roger, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this over the last four, five, six years. Somebody's got to come to a decision here. I think Congress tried to fix it back in the Small Business Act of, of 2010, but I'm not sure they, they, they made it easier. And if you correct me if I'm wrong, but this goes back to a discussion when you were at GSA. I think this goes back to the 90s about how to apply the rule too. So, I mean, if, if it goes back that far, I mean, I mean, you have been at GSA in like 40 years. Uh, yeah, I am about 100. <laughs> or at least I feel that way. But to your point, back in the 90s when, you know, at one point we were doing a rewrite of RA.4 ordering procedures and I worked with 
uh, the SBA folks on that. They're part of our committee working it. And, you know, particularly one guy, Ken Dodds, who's a great lawyer, good guy, and somebody I've worked with, had the pleasure of working with over the years. So I can remember us trying to fashion some compromise because GSA took the position under its statutory authorities that, you know, requirements had to be open to all sources, right? So that means you don't have, open to all sources means no set-asides. And the SBA had a different view that, you know, the law applied to orders because they're contracts and, tra- and acquisitions, et cetera. And we went back and forth. Ultimately, the sort of compromise, which I think has worked really well, is that it became discretionary um, whether agencies wanted to limit consideration to only small businesses for task orders. And that was implemented. And then I think, you know, the, sometimes, you know, the law, you know, the regulations or the agency behaviors get a, could theoretically be viewed as getting ahead of the, the law. And I think the Delex decision for multiple board IDIQ contracts about rule two applying to those. So I think that 2010 small business act, was an effort to try to meet that middle ground and provide the discretionary authority, but not make it mandatory that things be set aside as, as a workable approach. And I think, you know, at least my experience and looking at the data for the schedules, that has been a very successful approach. Now, I got an email after I wrote the story from a contracting officer in the government, and, and the person asked me not to mention their name. So we'll, we'll just say it's a contracting officer who knows this stuff much better than I do. And they had a really interesting uh, um, take on this. And they said, you didn't mention the utility case. And I was like, okay, what is the utility case? And this is a, a GAO decision from December, 2020. And basically GAO reverses this rule of two because it's really focused on this word discretion. It really is giving the agency and the contracting officer more discretion about what the, when the, does the rule of two apply? And when do they need to apply it? Now, Roger, I know I'm, I'm, no, I'm no expert at this, but what's interesting is they brought up, you know, the, during the, the case, Utility, which is a company protesting task and delivery orders, they bring up the Kingdomware case, they bring up other things and try to say to GAO, this is why it should apply. And GAO's response was basically, no, it doesn't. That's why we have discretion from the Small Business Jobs Act. And I, I think that's really what's, what's key here is that we have, different people or different legal organizations, Court of Federal Claims, GAO, Supreme Court with Kingdomware, Delix case, arguing different things. And that's why I think there's so much confusion going on here. And I think, you know, how do we solve this? Like, what, what can we, how do we get to a, a, a happy medium that satisfies everyone? I'm not sure there is, but some, I, I think causing the confusion or creating more confusion with these cases is really detrimental to the entire small business process and I'm not sure what the answer is. I just know that uh, it gives me plenty to write about, which I appreciate. Sure. I, and I think you know, the Kingdomware decision and Vets First, there's a separate statute that addresses that in the context. And the Supreme Court was applying that statute to the VA's procurement, you know, and contracts and orders and that sort of thing. So that's a little different situation than, you know, the, just the broad, what does small business act say? And, you know, and what did the 2010 act mean? I'll just go back just briefly is that my experience and just if you have a program that's really committed to supporting small businesses, if you provide the tools for contracting officers to be able to target small businesses and then you create the right incentives, it works. You know, I, mandates are always a tricky thing, you know, in the, in government or in life. 
And what I've seen over my career is, you know, creating, whether it's a GSA schedules program and the ability to set aside orders as a discretionary basis has seemed to work very effectively. Like I said, 37% of the dollar volume going to small business. And even the Create GSA is a strategy of creating a family of IT GWACs, you know, targeting different socioeconomic categories has turned out to be a very successful approach for providing opportunity to new market entrants to uh, small businesses, whether they're 8A companies or small business, women-owned small businesses. It's been a very effective approach because it gives people choice, right? And people, you know, based on their performance measures and things like that, will will make choices about the, the type of procurements that they want to do. And I think the goal of the system should be to provide those tools and let people manage to to get to the what the government goals are and mandating things I think you know can actually backfire in some instances and that's that's not what we want to see we want to see con- you know continued opportunity for small businesses I feel like Roger you're setting us up for the next segment well yes the next segment I think we'll talk a little bit about um you know, some of GSA's portfolio programs, um, the new services marketplace, you know, the BIC Mac contract. Ah, the BIC. Let me get my soapbox out while, you, while we take a break. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> going to I'm gonna go buy a Big Mac. I don't know. So maybe that's my lunch today. We'll see. Um, so my guest today is Jason Miller. He is executive editor for Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Network. And Jason, this segment, um, I think we're going to talk about something that large, medium, small businesses uh, and customer agencies really focus uh, uh, and care about a lot. And that's GSA's portfolio of contracting programs and the latest um, so, uh, you know, approach or thinking from GSA and uh, there's a lot of discussion now and I know you've been covering it a little bit, the services marketplace at GSA at the Federal Acquisition Service. Um, what have you observed so far? I think there's some really good things going on with GSA, uh, specifically around their federal marketplace strategy. Now, I was interesting enough. I just was did listen to a podcast that GSA put out, and the one thing that stood out to me is the progress they are making. And it's not always perfect. It's it's not always going to work out like a plus the first time. But if you look at, they have some thirty different projects that are ongoing to improve the federal acquisition service, to improve the federal marketplace. Uh, they have a few of the cornerstone product projects. We've talked a lot about them, like the commercial platform, like the mass consolidation like improvements around uh, IAE, integrated acquisition environment. And I think, Roger, that generally speaking, that we should give GSA a lot of credit. They deserve a lot of credit for taking on a lot of projects and coming to fruition with several of them and making things better. I think the the first one we got to start to talk about, however, is this new concept that's starting to emerge uh, around potentially, and I'll say that very, about replacing the OASIS uh, government-wide acquisition contract or multiple word contract. Uh, it's been a very, Oasis has been very popular. I think people, uh, agencies have used it. I think uh, agent, uh, vendors have enjoyed it. And uh, I think there's a lot of concern there. Now, we have not heard externally a ton about it. And I think you, uh, from the coalition's perspective, has maybe got a little bit more insight than we do. 
Well, I think, yeah, well, um, GSA, um, to its credit, they've, you know, over the last few years, to your point, they've done a lot of different things. You know, I point, you know, just in the schedules world, I would point to schedules consolidation and um, getting that across the finish line, at least to the point where now they're um, negotiating or working with companies who have multi- who have multiple contracts under the schedules to try to consolidate down to one. That's sort of the last phase of it. And yeah, they're working through that now. And that's been very successful. Also, you've seen growth in the schedules. You've seen growth across their ITG Wax and, uh, and Oasis as well. Um, that all just shows, you know, the value of the programs and supporting customer agency mission. And and they recognize, too, what they need to work on, like their systems for both the industry partners and for customers, just that bridge from the electronic perspective and the catalog management uh, aspect of it. So so there's a lot of good going on there. The You know, the, the BICMAC contract and GSA, again, to its credit, has been out talking to industry about, you know, the concept and what they're thinking about. And I guess just to put it in context, uh, Oasis I think is up in 2024. Um, so we're in the second option period, five-year option period. It uh, did over $9 billion in uh, agency support last year. Um, it is, I think, the largest uh, multiple award IDIQ services contract in government outside the schedules program. Uh, very, very successful. And many view it as a strategic asset for the government, and in particular because it supports the Department of Defense a great, great deal. And so GSA rightly is thinking about what the next iteration should look like. And I guess the current thinking just raises lots of questions I, I get amongst industry partners about the approach. You know, I think GSA is thinking about uh, a larger contract with hundreds, if not you know, over a thousand companies on the contract. Um, it's thinking about continuous open seasons. Um, it's would combined rather than have an Oasis uh, other than small and Oasis small business, two separate contract pools uh, combining into a single contract. Um, I think they're, they're looking at whether they're going to have a pool structure or develop some sort of domain structure around NICS codes and sub NICS codes around the project. Um, and they're also looking at using Section 876. So the evaluation of price will take place at the task order level rather than at the contract level. And so you, the co- uh, companies are trying to understand what's the business case for moving to really what is a fundamentally different approach than the current Oasis approach. What are customers saying about it? I'm getting questions from folks about, you know, well, we already have the schedules program and it has thousands of companies on it. It, you know, it has a bureaucracy that manages it. Are we creating another bureaucracy? How is GSA going to manage that or not? You know, at the end of the day, the difference between what's being described versus the schedule really boils down to cost reimbursement contracting that this vehicle would have, whereas, you know, the schedules do not at this point. And, but at the same time, non-cast contractors are going to be eligible to compete, especially small businesses. So, so there's a lot going on there and a lot to unpack. And I think, you know, I think industry is very interested in hearing from GSA about these questions about, you know, the role of Oasis currently and how, whether this contract will actually fill that role or will customer agencies look for other contract vehicles or create their own to fill what Oasis used to do, which again was a smaller pool of contractors 
you know, a high bar, quality bar for evaluation and selection, both of the small businesses and the large uh, business uh, vehicles within Oasis program. There is clearly a demand for that type of contract vehicle. And so how is GSA going to fill that demand as it's thinking about Big Mac? Roger, I think the Big Mac idea is interesting, but initially you have to say why. You know, I, I sometimes go back to, if it's not broken, why are we trying to fix it? And I just pulled up the Oasis dashboard, and it's a very impressive look. I mean, if you look at the, since, since Oasis was awarded starting 2018, you know, it, it's $6 billion, $8 billion, almost 10, you know, more than $10 billion in 2020. The number of awards are up, up, up in terms of, and the small businesses, you know, they've gotten 330 awards on Oasis. 291 awards, 269 awards in 18, 19, and 20. I mean, that's a lot of awards. There's more than large businesses are getting. So what's the deal here? Why are they? Why is GSA looking to maybe fix something? I think you can tweak it. You can improve the edges. And I, I love the idea of the unpriced schedule. I, I love the, or the unpriced master contract level. I love the idea of, of some of the on-ramps. I think that that's a, that's a huge problem for a lot of agencies. I think GSA would probably serve them well to take a half a step back and watch, if you will, I know it's a competitor, but watch how NITAC and their CIO SP4 goes because they're taking a whole different approach. They have one contract, not a large and a small one. They have one contract, but they have set asides that can happen. They have small business subcontracting requirements. I'm really interested in that approach and how that could potentially apply to a future Oasis versus let's tear down the ship and rebuild it. That's always a little concerning because you have success. I'm not saying it's perfect, but again, how do you smooth out the edges? How do you fix some of the challenges versus let's start over? And it sounds like they're starting over to a greater degree. It is a good thing potentially to look at what happens over at NIH and NITAC. The Big Mac is sharing some of the thoughts of the NITAC approach in that there would be a single contract with small and large businesses. So it might behoove them to see how that one works out to see if that makes sense or not. I know across the businesses that, you know, interact with us, whether they're small or large, there is concern around combining it into a single contract and how manageable that is for the customer agencies and actually how appealing it is as from a marketing perspective for the customer agencies. Whereas, you know, in the past you'd be able to say, okay, I've got this Oasis small business one right here. You need to meet your small business goals. You go right to that immediately. Then you're done and you just do your procurement. Or if I need to do a huge, you know, $200 million task order or something very highly complex. Um, I've got this other Oasis, you know, other than small um, that's out there as well, or that's open to, to all sources that competed for it. And just the marketing approach and understanding that and what customers want to see, they want simplicity moving forward, right? And when you start combining it into a single contract, then you get into all the stuff we talked about in the last segment, rule of two, does it apply, doesn't apply, that sort of thing. Um, you know, so there's that from the feedback I get from, you know, lots of folks in the industry and just observers of the f procurement market is one of the strengths of, you know, GSA's family of ITGWACs that are, you know, targeted to specific socioeconomic categories, very effective approach to reach the customer. So that's one of the issues. And, I, I, and to your point, I think, you know, it behooves GSA to provide a clear statement. I mean, 
and business case as to what it's trying to achieve here and how it will meet customer agency missions through this vehicle. Because they, to your point, Oasis is hugely successful. It is meeting fundamental requirements for customer agencies like the Air Force every day. So could it be refined? Are there areas where it could be improved? Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing that's perfect out there, right? But this seems to be, as we currently understand it, a 180 degree turn to a different approach, you know, and raises questions whether, you know, GSA could look to the schedules and maybe, and I'm not advocating this, but it's something that should be asked, like, why not add that cost reimbursement capability to the schedules? Then you've got that covered. And the schedules are the entry point for small businesses. If the concern is providing opportunity for small businesses in the services arena, the schedules is the entry point. It's what everybody looks to as that seal of approval for entry into the federal market. And it also supports uh, companies who want to do state work as well. Do you get a sense that the schedules, the way it was developed in the 90s, And it has morphed and it has evolved, but it kind of needs a refresh in the sense of some of the rules that fall under it, like OLMs, right? Order level materials was an example of a way to, to the, the tweak that had developed over the years because agencies, their buying habits change. GSA has a better understanding. Do you think that this is another area where maybe it's time to tweak the schedules to, to add the, the, the different types of contracts. So I've heard that for years that, well, what's the difference between Alliant, you know, two and the schedules? Well, under Alliant two, you could do cost reimbursement contracts and under the schedules, you can only do time and materials. Well, why don't you just change the schedules? Well, because under Alliant two, <laughs> you can do well, order. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, we have more flexibility. Well, why not just add the flexibility of the schedules? I mean, Roger, I'll tell you, it's the same thing. I would tell you is why do we need the commercial platforms? just make GSA Advantage better. But I know that's a different discussion. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a great question. And I guess, you know, it start with, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's a perfect time for a refresh of the schedules from a, in a couple different ways. So number one, as you know, and I've talked to multiple times, but the pricing policies need fundamental streamlining um, to increase access to commercial products and services. The price reduction clause is a 1980s, tool that doesn't reflect the current market we the world operates in and in fact in many ways restricts the ability of companies to compete in the private sector because if they offer a lower price to a commercial customer that could potentially get them in trouble with the government nobody wants that's bad economic policy i mean if we're trying to be pro-growth and pro-jobs you know one of the first things you know from a from from my perspective and as a procurement guru would be to eliminate that, you know, that, that requirement in and of itself. It's just, it, it's a drag on growth. It's a drag on companies and increase their uh, compliance costs um, and doesn't allow them to invest in, you know, solutions for customer agencies which is really what this should be all about. So, so that needs to be reformed. Uh, I, you know, the OLMs is a great case. I mean, really what that boils down to is, you know, the Services Acquisition Reform Act allowed, you know, an authorized uh, labor hour type orders and authorized the approach to other direct costs. So for commercial item contracts. So part 12 of the FAR is implemented and provided for all that. GSA just chose not to implement that for it, the premier commercial item contracting program in the federal government. And instead of implementing 
what was already there on the books, statutory and regulatory. They had to come up with, and I give credit to Jeff Kosas. I mean, they did what they could do, came up with a workaround and, and issued through the GSAR order level materials, which at the end of the day is akin to the same flexibility that's already in, was already in the FAR and could have been implemented through the FAR. But just because of the nature of the stakeholders surrounding GSA and how it all plays out, GSA you know, used its own uh, independent statutory authority for the schedules program to implement it in the way it shows, which again, it was, it was, it got it done. It was important. And, you know, Jeff gets a lot of credit for that. So, so it's to, yeah. So that, and just to, you know, if you want to talk about Alliant versus schedules, I think, you know, Alliant is an important contract vehicle. It's a different contract vehicle. It's a different premise than the schedules. It's, it's about, you know, high level evaluations of quality and capabilities to do highly complex work. You know, it's in a certain sense, it complements the schedules and the schedules complement it. And I think it's, it's been a very effective approach that GSA has taken over the years. And you can see it by, you know, the level of uh, customer agency missions that are met through Alliant, through Oasis, through the schedules as well. They complement each other because they're structured differently and they're trying to achieve different things. So uh, that's my two cents on it, uh, Jason. I think we're up on the break. So when we come back, we'll continue our discussions. What do you want to talk about next, Jason? Let's talk about, I don't know, uh, let's have those four letters that industries uh, loving CMMC. Oh, sure. 89 or Oh, something. yeah, we'll do a cyber segment. How about that? Go. That'd Perfect. be good. So, yes, uh, my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of Federal News Network, and we're doing our potpourri of government procurement. Uh, how you like that, huh? That's pretty good. A potpourri. It's, it's always a potpourri with us. Yes, absolutely. So in uh, this segment, per your choice, is to, we're going to talk about Section 889 CMMC and just cyber. And just uh, the context here, we all know how all stakeholders in the community know uh, and across government really know how critical this is to our national security and the solar winds, um, you know, hack is just uh, going to shape, you know, compliance, not just in the government, but I think across industry, um, you know, and how moving forward, it was already top of mind. I, I don't know how much higher top of mind it can get. Many folks have commented, you know, we're in a cyber war at the end of the day. Yeah, and so things like Section 889 and CMMC, they're not going away by any stretch. And the question is, how do we make these things, you know, more effective, uh, you know, uh, for both government and industry, ensuring, you know, efficient and effective compliance and a compliance that makes a difference, but that also doesn't undercut the ability of folks to perform the mission or provide the service. Your thoughts? Let me start with 889 maybe for a little bit because I think this is fascinating. As a reminder, you know, there's part A, part B. Part B specifically came uh, into effect August of 2020. Agency, basically vendors had to say, we are not using Chinese telecommunication products or services from Huawei, ZTE, several others. And they had to basically self-attest to the government saying they're not doing this. I somehow found this, and I don't remember how, Roger, to be honest, uh, a dashboard that GSA actually put up 
uh, to say how many of their vendors that they work with have modified their Part B, their contract with Part B of, of 889. And I'm just looking at it today. So here we are, early March. And so far, 16,000 vendors, a little bit over, have accepted that modification. Uh, 187 have not. Now, what's interesting, those are still pending. And what's interesting is you can see how many actually decided not to do it at all. And when you say, you know, who actually, some have actually canceled their contract. And you can get down to contract number, contract vehicle. You can see, well, how many on, since we're talking Oasis, how many on Oasis did it? And I think it's a fascinating dashboard. Uh, 212 uh, large businesses, seven small and 219 total, all have accepted the 889 change. If you want to look at, let's say, Alliant 2, just because we talked about that one, uh, 51, all accepted it. So very, just very interesting dashboard to, to tell you what's going on. There are some who've said they didn't accept it at all and, and actually have canceled their contract with GSA for assorted reasons. It's harder to say why or how it worked. But um, it, it, again, I'll go back to just interesting information. And part of how GSA in, in many ways is, is really doing a nice job of providing that dashboard information. Uh, we see it with Oasis. We see it with HCATS as a dashboard. We see it with the GWAC dashboard and now the 889 dashboard. The challenge, Roger, is how to find it. I, I don't remember how I came across it. I know it was not on purpose. I think uh, it wasn't some of that crack investigative. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> well, Skills. maybe it was now that you put it that <laughs> right, way. <laughs> but I think what's important here is that, that the agencies are making progress. Uh, what I would ask you as the lawyer of this conversation is I say, Roger, I've done it. I've, I've not using Huawei, ZTE products, other Chinese telecommunications products. Does that now open me up to a false claim act if, or a KETAM lawsuit? If all of a sudden we have a, someone in my um, company who gets mad and decides to uh, find a, a piece of Huawei somewhere buried deep inside, does that open yourself up to a false claim, claim lawsuit? That leads to a broader conversation about cyber and false claims. So let me start with that 889 question. Yeah, I, I my mean, legal the, answer, the short, short answer is yes. You got to be sensitive to that issue if you're a government contractor. And, you know, that goes to your, your compliance program you put in place, how you monitor it, what, how you've reviewed your systems to see, you know, whether or not um, you're, you, you have used or were using and what you've done to address any use of the, the prohibited equipment in your operations and how you continue to address that. And, you know, one of the things that I think would be very helpful is some sort of safe harbor provision for companies when they do set up you know, that kind of compliance regime, put that in place, and, you know, share that information with the government saying, this is how we do it. And then, you know, some time down the road, oops, there's, they missed a piece or something or something that it's inadvertent. It's not an intentional a mistake happened. Right. But that safe Harbor, they discover it and mitigate it and report it, you know, kind of a safe Harbor uh, provision would be very helpful to address that. So, but yes, I mean, this is just another new, um, not just, but it is another new compliance requirement that government contractors have to be vitally aware of. And it is all government contractors, right? It's, we're not talking, you know, just IT, you know, it, it, this applies to all government contractors and applies to, to their operations. So think about a, a company that has worldwide operations and what they have to think about and how they have to go about right. analyzing this and talking to the government and say what, you know, making sure they understand their obligations and responsibilities. So yeah, it's a challenging thing. 
And it's something that, you know, to your point, um, it does potentially provide uh, fodder for those who are, you know, looking to file key TAM suits or that kind of thing down the road. I, I was part of this uh, talking about False Claims Act is a, the head of the Justice Department division that is, you know, in, in charge of False Claims Act gave a speech. And they talked about kind of some of the priorities for 2021 and cybersecurity. They specifically called out cybersecurity as an area that if a government contractor says they are doing something, protecting government data, government systems in some way, and they're found that they're not, you know, I think that the lawyer from the Justice Department was saying that will be an opportunity for another to an increase a false claims lawsuit. So I think that that actually leads us down to, you know, the, the cybersecurity maturity model certification, CMMC. And, and the government, I think, is really turning up the heat of pressure on vendors to do what they're going to say they're going to do. If you're protecting government data, make sure you're protecting it. And, uh, you know, the folks over at DOD, Katie Arrington, Stacey Bosjanic, talk about this great example of the F-35 fighter and say, do you know why the Chinese J-31 looks exactly the same as the F-35 fighter and have had the same cockpit problems and the same this problem and the same that problem? They stole the data. They stole the plans. It's not by accident that they, you know, had this problem. The F-35 had this problem. And then the J-31 had the same problem. And I think that's where this is coming from now. This understanding now more than ever that vendors have to do more to protect government data and protect their own data from espionage that's happening. Right. I think, and I've heard Katie, she's, she's talked to, you know, the coalition membership before, and it is, you know, it is presented now as one of the pillars of government procurement. It's foundational to government procurement that, you know, you know, cybersecurity protecting, um, you know, capabilities, you know, intellectual property of both the government and industry is, you know, is again, it's is one, one of the pillars of the, of the procurement system moving forward and that's not going to change. Um, and you know, hopefully government contractors will listen to what you just described, uh, the communication from the department of justice, because, you know, compliance is good business and government. I mean, it's fundamental to business and government contracts and, you know, just the stakes are raised further, you know, in this area because of the, the national security implications of what's going on. So, um, and Jason, you know what, we're up on the break. Uh, and when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about e-commerce, where it is or isn't. You know, maybe you found a dashboard for that that you could share with me. I don't know. So, and, and just to finish up with just a little bit about, I think, uh, domestic sourcing and the Buy America push by the Biden administration. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walter. My guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of Federal News Network. And Jason, um, you know, I know it's something you followed very closely over the implementation phase. Um, you know, we're into the pilot phase, I guess, with three contractors and e-commerce. And, and it's kind of an interesting nexus to all these policy issues versus you know, the e-commerce streamlining and how that is all going to play out. And just, you know, what are you, are you hearing anything or seeing anything with regard to the, the platforms? So not much, but Crystal Philcox did give a short update during the 
podcast that I listened to uh, in preparation for our discussion today. And she did talk about the commercial platform. Proof of concept is ongoing. Uh, three agencies, they're tracking the spend. But that was about it. No, no details beyond that. Nothing more about plans for 2021 and beyond. I think there is a little bit of GSA even saying, we're not sure how this is going to work, whether this is how beneficial this is going to be. I mean, when I've talked to GSA in the past and you know, several months ago, they were saying how agencies were chomping at the bit to join in. I have no reason to think that's not true, but we have not heard a lot about it and they're not talking about it quite yet. So maybe they're just trying to take a wait and see approach to say, okay, let's wait and see how things play out. Let's see how much progress we're making and then they can go from there. But I think it's something that, I think a lot of agencies and a lot of people in the industry are paying close attention to because, you know, GSA estimates it could be like a $6 billion market. And that's a whole lot of money that could be moved from, if you will, an open market to more of a closed market. And I think that's the concern that I know your members probably have as well as others in the community. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's interesting that we, we haven't heard a lot about, you know, the progress to date with regard to the program. And, you know, we look forward to, GSA sharing, you know, how things are going at a certain point. I think that's important for GSA. It's important for transparency, you know, and there's companies who want to understand how, how things are going there, whether they want to make business decisions to participate in it or not, you know, or whether they want to understand how to compete in different arenas against that particular channel. There's all kinds of things, which competition is a good thing, right? Across the board, whether it's different, approaches or different channels versus competing within the e-commerce platform. That's all good. Competition's a good thing. So that kind of market information, I think, would be helpful for industry as well as for the government to, for GSA to share. You know, and it's interesting. So, so in the last segment, you know, I, I couldn't help but think about this when you, you described GSA's dashboard for 889 and implementation of that and modifying the contracts and that sort of thing. You know, GSA, you know, that's its job and it, you know, it's worked to, uh, towards compliance on its contract vehicles, whether it's schedules or GWACs or whatever. Um, but the, you know, at the same time, there's not the same dynamic in the e-commerce platform, right? As, as far as I can tell, it's, you know, it's, you know, the, the buyer has to be aware that they're, you know, can't buy Huawei stuff. I'm not sure how they're, whether they're screening to keep that stuff out or not available for government purchasers. I mean, it'd be nice to know and understand how that stuff was working as well. Um, and so that compliance is certainly is, 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 a, is, is a harder to gauge. And there's all kinds of other government requirements along those lines that people care about that'll be interesting to see how they play out. Because to your point, um, GSA has over the many years has said, hey, this is a six, $6 billion market annually that they're trying to, 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 to address. You know, that's, you know, if a three-year, con- that's $18 billion over three, that's, a, that's real money. <laughs> it gets into- and so, um, and the thing that companies who participate in government contracts have always been very frustrated about is a potential channel being set up um, still where none of the government requirements that they're used to complying with, like Trade Agreements Act or Buy American Act, apply to the e-commerce platform. So theoretically, and it's not any, you know, it's just the rules. It's just what it is. 
um, the way it's been structured by GSA that, you know, you could buy 100% Chinese uh, products because every transaction has to be below the micro purchase threshold. So no, those things don't apply other than the prohibition on Huawei and that sort of thing. Um, Did you get a sense that there's two parallel initiatives going on here between the commercial marketplace and then the catalog uh, initiative? Because when I'm listening to Crystal talk on the podcast and about the things they're doing with the catalog, they're talking about creating base data solution, sets up a new vendor portal around catalog, easier for suppliers to interact with us, uh, prepare us for improving product data, more standardized product data, new data elements to help buyers understand what they're buying, compare different products. The catalog, is, as Crystal says, a key piece to our modernization of FAS. Um, they, she goes on to say it's going to improve the accuracy of our offerings, fee transactional buying, advantage to, to improve the applications, the way we're delivering information to buyers. So they're implementing ro- robotics process automation as well that will take some of that data to feed it to buyers and sellers. It seems like they're doing all these changes to the to GSA Advantage and the schedules program that's going to lead to this idea of the commercial platform, which is what all the tools that the quote unquote Amazons and others of the world already have. So it feels like they're doing two, these two parallel paths. Yeah, that's a fair observation in, the sen- in this sense. Like, what, you know, when we've looked at the e-commerce platforms, hands down, um, you know, from, and I know there was that Naval postgraduate study as well that, you know, in our view of it, and theirs are, are, are consistent in the sense that, you know, the user friendliness of the commercial platforms um, and the ability for people to, you know, just point and click and buy and, you know, how, how user, I don't know what better word, user friendly, you know, customer focused those platforms are, you know, that's just hasn't been, you know, the government purchasers experience with, um, you know, just some of the government systems like GSA Advantage. I mean, so GSA is right to make those investments. And, but at the same, I will defend GSA Advantage because GSA Advantage was there before there was an Amazon, right? It was, you know, it was the leader back in the nineties as a commercial IT platform for buying and displaying market research information and pricing and products and that sort of stuff. It was generally the first of its kind. Um, You know, the, you know, the, the, I think the challenge was over the, generations, I guess, you know, the investments didn't keep pace with the technology, technological changes and what we can do now. Um, so GSA, I think, is making a wise investment to look at how to improve those systems to deliver that user friendliness, the data analytics, the things that customers are all asking for these days. Yeah, it's, uh, that's a good, that's a good observation, Jason, just the way, way things are going. And, and GSA is, I think, on the right path on that, in that regard. Yes. So Jason, I think you know we're we're at the end of the show. Uh oh, yeah. So it's um, always fun. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, well, I'll have you back. You know, periodically we'll just you do our potpourri show and see what's going on out there. And, exactly. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again. I want to thank my guest today, Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.